Well, it's uh, good to have you here today at Carville Bible Church. Uh, I should be watching this with my family uh, at the same time in Steamboat Springs, Colorado. And so uh, this will be interesting. I'll be with uh, my family, be able to worship with you. And um, I'm thankful the Lord has given us a chance to have some time away as a family. But I'm also thankful to get to preach this last message to you. I thought a couple weeks ago we had finished our series on the blessings of fearing the Lord. Uh, but it seems that we have not really covered the idea of wisdom, the wisdom of God, and how that uh, helps a person who fears the Lord to walk in wisdom. So we're going to take a look at that here today. And what a great way to end this message series um, on this one uh, kind of final message. So today, if you're looking for a title, once again, the series that we're doing is The Blessings of Fearing the Lord. And today we're looking at the wisdom of God and the wise person. Now, there's some iconic texts that inform us of this idea of the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And if you'll take a, if you were to reference in what we're referencing is Psalm 110:11 where it says the fear of Yahweh is the beginning of wisdom. Uh, by the way, if you're following in an NASB or an ESV Bible, or NIV, you might hear me say Yahweh a lot here today. Um, I have gotten a new Bible, a legacy standard Bible, and uh, I left my ESV um, at one office as I was actually working on this message at another office, and all I had was my new LSV by me, and so I decided to give her a, give her a test drive. So Psalm 111.10, the fear of Yahweh is the beginning of wisdom. You might have the fear of the Lord as the beginning of wisdom. That's that iconic verse that informs us today. But that's not all. There's quite a bit that it talks about the fear of the Lord and wisdom, how these go together. Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of Yahweh is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So Proverbs and Psalms paint this picture of this, the fear of the Lord brings about wisdom. Now, before we jump more into the idea of wisdom, I just want to replay with you in case you're a guest, in case you're seeing this message for the first time, in case you didn't catch uh, message number one. This is message number five of this series, The Blessings of Fearing the Lord. I just want to quickly review with you why, why we could say the idea that this is a blessing to fear the Lord. Proverbs fifteen sixteen says, Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. The scriptures act like it's a good thing. It's a joyful thing. It's a blessed thing. Psalm 31 verse 19. Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you. So I just want to remind you, if you've not been here for this whole message series, we're talking about the fear of the Lord, not because it's a bad thing, because it's a good thing. It's a blessed thing. It's commended in scripture. Also, if you've not been here in previous weeks, I I do also want you to understand what the actual meaning of the fear of God, the fear of the Lord, the fear of Yahweh means. In the Old Testament, there's a word that is typically used, yar, uh, for fear. And in the New Testament, it's phobos. And these two words have a full range meaning between the idea of dread and terror or afraid, dread and terror or afraid, but also reverence and awe. So... When we think about the fear of the Lord, 
we're bringing these two elements, these, these two meanings together in a robust understanding of fear of the Lord. So you'll see some people in Christianity try to sanitize down that idea of the fear of the Lord. And they'll say, well, to fear the Lord is only reverence and awe. And I would say, yes, and amen, that is a part of it. But there's also the other aspect of fearing the Lord, where if you're not in Christ, you should be afraid for what is coming in eternity for you. Yes, you should. I'm not trying to fear monger you into Jesus, but I'm telling you, this is the truth. The, the wrath of God rests on you. If you're a Christian, you should you should fear the disciplined hand of the Lord. It's it's not a pleasant thing. Now it's for your good, but it's 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 not a pleasant thing. So there's these two elements of fearing the Lord: the the dread, terror, afraid, and the awe and reverence. These two things come together, and all depending on the context of where it's used in Scripture. So these this is the many nuanced meaning of the fear of the Lord. So we don't want to run in one pendulum swing, which is when we talk about the fear of the Lord, we only paint it in pictures of dread and afraid. But we also don't want to paint the fear of the Lord only in the picture of reverence and awe. These two robust meanings come together when we look at this word, yar and phobos. So now that you know that, that's just some background if you miss number one, if you're a guest, if you're just checking into this series as we end it. Now, what I'm going to do with the rest of our time, now that I've kind of got back to the idea of, yes, it's a blessed thing to fear the Lord. It's a good thing. It's a great thing if someone were to say, you, this person fears the Lord, that, that, or that person is a God-fearing person. That's a good thing. Now that we know also what it means to fear the Lord, now let's look at wisdom. And my outline today, the kind of progression of thought, is first, I want to take a look at God who is all-wise. If we're going to consider the idea of the fear of Yahweh is wisdom, then let's first talk about how is Yahweh all wise? How is God all wise? Then we're going to look at how the fear of God exists in the person's life that are wise. Then we're going to look at how the fear of God exists in a person's life. They will have wisdom um, ethically and morally. Then we'll look at the fear of God, it, where it is, uh, it, where it exists, there is salvation. First, can we just take a look at God and the idea of Yahweh is all wise, that God is all wise? What we believe about God will determine how we behave. And if we're going to be someone who fears the Lord, truly fears the Lord in a wise way, and it brings about wisdom, that person would, would obviously want to know about the wisdom of God and what that means. Some interesting things about God's wisdom, and this won't be exhaustive, but just some, several things to point out about God's wisdom, that he is all wise. God never needs consultation outside of himself. God's wisdom is so superior, so high, so infinite. And when I say the word infinite, what I'm meaning is there is no number or counting. It is unlimited. God's wisdom is so infinite. We are finite. We are limited. He is unlimited. And in his unlimited, in his otherness, he does not consult with anybody else about the decisions he makes in life. There's no team meetings with God. There's no team meetings that God needs to have with us. He always makes the right decision. He never needs consultation from man. He never needs consultation from an angel. He never needs consultation from anybody. Among himself, in his holy trinity, he has all the consulting that he needs. 
Genesis 1.26, don't we remember? When God was making man, it says in Genesis 1.26, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. So he never needs consultation. If there's, and if there's consultation, it's within the Godhead himself like we see it at creation. But let alone, let's, not, let's remember that in, in its absolute truth, God never needs consultation outside of himself. He never needs it. Isaiah 40, verse 13, he said, the prophet says, Who has encompassed the spirit of Yahweh? Or as his counselor has informed him. So Isaiah says in Isaiah 40, 13, Who has counseled, been a counselor to God? Verse 14 of Isaiah 40, With whom did he take counsel? And who gave him understanding? The prophet says, Who who taught him? Who gave him counsel? Who helped him to understand what a wise decision would be? Or who taught him the path of justice? Or taught him God knowledge and made him know the way of understanding? So the prophet is saying, who taught God? Who made him to have knowledge? Who helped him? Who helped him to have the path of justice? And he's asking questions, not because he's trying to lead you that someone did. He's pointing out in Isaiah 40, when you read the whole chapter, that we are dealing with an infinite, unlimited, uncountable, and otherness type of God. He needs no consultation. You know, there's big things and big decisions in life that when I make them, um, the older I get, it seems like I, I want to consult with people. I want to look at all angles. I re- recognize that I, on my own, can't see every angle. That's the blessedness of being married, that you have a spouse that you can help look at all the different angles when you make a big decision. That's the beauty of being in a church that has a plurality eldership. We make big decisions. We work on this together. That's the blessing of doing things in community. I'd be fearful to make decisions on my own without consultation, but God is not that way. That's how infinite and unlimited his wisdom is. Not only that, his wisdom is always higher than ours. Another verse, the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 55, verse 8 through 9, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares Yahweh. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, Yahweh says, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. God's wisdom is unlimited, and it's unlimited to the aspect that it's higher than our thoughts. Just when you think that you've figured out God, you've not figured out God. In fact, what's even interesting, some people think that when they get to heaven that they're going to understand everything about every mystery instantly when we get to glory. And I would say, that's not true. We, we are not infinite beings. We don't have this unlimited ability. When we get to heaven, yes, we will be devoid of the fall. Yes, we will have glorified bodies. But we will not instantly know everything there is to know. In fact, we will be drinking deep of the knowledge of the one true God, His infinite, His infiniteness for all eternity. How long will this take? How long will we be in, endued with knowledge? It'll, it, there's no way we'll ever exhaust it even in glory. Let, let me give you an example. Let's say that you were to take all the water of the earth and put it in a thimble and have a bird fly to the moon with that thimble full of water. And once you have had that bird with a thimble full of water, take every bit of water on the earth and put it to the moon and flown back and forth, when all that is accomplished, 
we will just be scratching the surface of what the infinite God is like. He's higher than our ways. Even when it comes to this work of salvation, his ways are higher than our ways. When I first started uh, going to church at 15 and became a follower at 16, I I had this idea that God kind of saved people who were deserving and needy or, or, or God saved people who grew up in church or God saved people who knew a lot of theology. But when we look in the scripture, God's wisdom doesn't work the way man's wisdom works. I'll read for you a great passage of scripture. If you want to turn over to your Bible, you'll have some time here. First Corinthians chapter one and verse 18 through 31. I just want to read this passage just once again to promote to you the idea that his wisdom is higher than our wisdom. Verse 18 of first Corinthians one. Look how high God's wisdom is, especially when in this text that has to do with the work of the cross. It says this, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are saved, it is, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Verse 20, Paul says, where's the wise man? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? God has a more wise way. He brings about redemption. It's not the way that the most learned men on earth would say it would happen. Verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Paul points out that that God has decided to use the proclamation of the good news of the gospel to bring people to salvation, not from their own intellect or their own figuring God out or their own Gnostic look into secret knowledge, but through the preaching of the good news. He says in verse 22, For indeed Jews seek a sign and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews he's a stumbling block, to the Gentiles he's foolishness, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, he is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Just a side note, God's power and God's wisdom go together. They don't separate from each other. To know that God is sovereign and all-powerful is also to admit that he is all-wise. If you don't believe that God, if you don't trust that God is sovereign, it's because you might not trust that he is all-wise. If you don't think he's all-wise or all-sovereign, I'll add something else in there. It's also because you probably don't believe that he's all-good. And then if you don't believe those, it's probably because you don't believe he's all-loving because you're not filtering your thoughts of the one true God through the revelation of the redemption that came in Jesus Christ. But nonetheless, look in verse 25. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. On our strongest day, we are still weak. We, on our strongest day, on his weakest day, he's much stronger than us, if that even, if, if such a hypothesis could even exist, which it doesn't. The foolishness of God is wiser than men. The weakness of God is stronger than man. Verse 6, 26. For consider your calling, brothers, that there are not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. Verse 27. But God has chosen the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong. And base things of the world and the despised God has chosen the things that are not, so that he may abolish the things that are, so that no flesh may boast before God. No one here today in this congregation is saved by their own good works and what they've done because you could boast before God. God has decided to save sinners. 
God has not decided to save people who have it all together or can claim their ethnic heritage or claim their intelligence. God has come for people who couldn't save themselves. And the wisdom of God, God brought about the first Adam who fell into sin and drug all of creation and all of humanity. And then God, in his wisdom, brought the second Adam named Jesus Christ who made right what Adam made wrong. In verse 30, and by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So God is wise, even in the way that God goes about salvation. His ways are higher than our ways. We we must admit this. God's ways are higher than our ways. How do I know this? Because every one of us, if we're honest, we look back at the Garden of Eden. And we say to ourselves, I can't believe Adam disobeyed Eve. Or I can't believe that, that um, I'm sorry, that Adam, I think I said that wrong. <laughs> that I can't believe that Adam disobeyed God. I can't believe that Eve disobeyed God. I can't believe that Adam listened to Eve. I can't believe that Eve listened to the serpent. I can't believe any of that happened. That's our wisdom. Now, we're not excusing it. They're guilty, but that's our wisdom. But in the... In the, the, the sovereign plan of God, that happened so that God could lavish his grace so that we would have more than redemption, so that we could be bought and redeemed, so that we would have more than just this existence in the garden, but we would have this existence in the heavenly garden of the new Jerusalem. We would have this relationship not based on anything we've done to stay at this level of being a human, but we would be someone that could have a relationship With God through Jesus Christ that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. There's the wisdom of God. All in Adam fell. But if all in Adam fell, then all in Christ can raise. God's wisdom is higher than our wisdom. God's plan is higher than our plan. And not only that, he never makes mistakes in what he decides. Notice at creation in Genesis 1, after after he creates, he keeps saying, he keeps he keeps saying it is good. It's good. Even after the creation of, of man, he says it's very good. No, no oops for God. No, I made a mistake. I mean, even on my best day, even on of our best days, when we try to be as careful as possible, we still make mistakes. But God is so wise and so infinite, he doesn't even make mistakes in anything that he does. I'm reminded of the, the great, great game called operation right then we all know operation where you have the little you have the little piece whether it's the rib or the rubber band or the horse or i don't know who decided uh, those were going to be the particular uh, game pieces but nonetheless i can remember when you would play operation you could know exactly where you're going you could know exactly how to approach that one particular thing you were going to pull out like the pencil which i always thought was the hardest or the heart which I always kind of thought was one of the easier ones. And no matter how careful you were, inevitably at some point you were going to kind of tap the side and it was going to buzz and everybody was going to jump. No matter how careful you were, no matter how wise you tried to be, no matter how you tried not to make a mistake, inevitably you play the game long enough, you actually were going to hit the buzzer. But this is why, it, this is what makes us different from God. Or make, better yet, really makes God different from us. God never makes a mistake. Everything God sees and does and plans to do, there's never a buzz. There's never an accident. That's how wise he is. That's how unlimited he is in his wisdom. 
And not only that, his wisdom is inexhaustible. Isaiah 40, 28 says, His understanding is unsearchable. It cannot be exhausted. And not only that, his wisdom is without limit. Job says at the very end in Job 42, verse 3, after he's been fully confronted with what the one true God is like, Job says, Therefore I have declared that which I do not understand, things too marvelous for me, which I did not know. All that God had going on behind the scenes, the cosmic war that was going on, what God was working out in the book of Job. Job didn't get to see it all. But there's a God that was without limit, and Job is willing to admit that. Even when you go to Romans eleven thirty three, this this passage that we know so much about, which in the context is really talking about, in Romans chapter 11, it's talking about how the, the, the fall of ethnic Jew is actually meant that the gospel has been brought to the Gentiles, but God has a plan for Israel. God has a plan for ethnic Jew. God has a plan for Gentile. This is all part of, part of God's wisdom. And then at the end of it, Romans eleven thirty three, Paul says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor? So as we look at this idea of the blessings of fearing the Lord, we have to admit that there's only one that is all wise. And that's the Lord. And there would be no other God that you'd ever want to worship than a God that's all wise. So, where there is the fear of God, there is a wise person. And that wise person would have an unflinching trust in the wisdom of God. Which would make the truth of the Psalm 110.11, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now, something I want to point out to you, um, that when it comes to the idea of wisdom... You also see in the scriptures that that idea of wisdom is paired with knowledge. Where you have true knowledge, you have true wisdom. Where you have true wisdom, you have knowledge. And they pair together. For instance, we read this earlier, Proverbs 9.10. It says, the fear of Yahweh is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. These two elements go together. If you have someone who is wise, it's because... There is knowledge of what the one true God is like. This is why it's so important to study the Word of God. This is why it's so important to talk to people who know the Word of God. This is why it's so important to read from those who have written about what the one true God is like. This is why it's good to fill your life with good songs and good podcasts and good teaching so that you can have knowledge of what the one true God is like, so that you could increase your fear of the Lord and walk in wisdom. But what I can tell you is this, is sometimes people just think wisdom is just, it is separate from knowledge. And I would say a right knowledge of God will lead to a right wisdom about God, which will help to lead about a fear of God. Let me give you an example. There's this theology out there called deism. And deism is kind of this idea that, and people think it all the time. Even people that would think of themselves as wise and want to make wise decisions in life, and their knowledge of God is the idea that God, that all of life works kind of in a deistic kind of way. And here's what deism means. It means basically that God started the world, put all creation into existence, got it going, and then just kind of spins the globe and the galaxy and lets it go according to natural law and hands off at that point. There's a lot of people that believe that. I would probably guess that several of us here believe in a form of deism that 
God is good and God is loving, but God is, but you look around at all the tragedy in life, you look away, you look around at all the things that are disappointing and you just say, I, I can't believe that God is in control of this. I, I can't think that. So what you think and you come to the wise conclusion to, of your own is, okay, maybe he just started it all, created it all, spun it, took his hands off, and everything's just kind of going in, in kind of its natural order. And some things, bad things happen, but God has no control over that. Now, here's what I would say. If that's your knowledge, that incorrect knowledge will lead to an incorrect wisdom, which will lead to an incorrect fear of the Lord. Instead of fearing the Lord, if you have that thought of deism, you'll actually start fearing man. You'll actually start fearing what happens when the news reports happen, or you'll start fearing so many things around you. What, how could you ever live a life that was properly fearing the Lord if you didn't believe that he was sovereign over all the events of man? But there's another one. So deism, it's, it's an incorrect knowledge of God, and that incorrect knowledge of God, the deism, would actually lead you into a bad wisdom, which would also lead you into not fearing the Lord properly, not having an awe and respect and reverence for him. But let me give you another one. It's called open theism. Open theism. Now, open theism is this idea that God creates it all and he makes his choices, but God makes his choices based on what he could see in the future. So it's this idea that God, you know, so people who have this open theism idea, and to be honest with you, I'd be willing to guess that many of us here have this belief that, that God is sovereign over everything and creates it all, but what God really does is he looks into the future to see the decisions that Nick is going to make and kind of learns from that. So God almost limits himself, and then based off of the decisions of Nick makes, then God pulls back into eternity past and kind of makes his decisions. Now, for those who have a problem with a sovereign God, for those that have a problem with words like election and predestination and foreknowledge, that's a great explanation. But in the end, that won't leave your soul right. It won't. It's not a correct knowledge of God. And why is that? Because God in all his wisdom is unlimited. And if he, if God's knowledge is as much as our knowledge in the future, if God's knowledge is as much as what we're discovering in the future, then he's truly not God. That's not how he works. He, if he's God, then he knows more than us. If he's God, he is in control. But if he is learning... If there's something that God doesn't know, then that's not a very known God. Job 21, 22, Job says, can anyone teach God's, God knowledge? God does not learn. He knows. Let me say that again. God does not learn. He knows. But the idea that people have with open theism is that God is learning the future, and that's, that's how he can be so sovereign in the past, and it makes really good sense to people who would like to reduce God and bring God down to our kind of level. But in the end, that kind of knowledge will not lead to a wisdom, and that will not lead to the fear of the Lord. Because in the end, basically the Lord is kind of sitting around and posturing himself to whatever decisions that we're going to make in the future. That doesn't seem to be the way that the scriptures present God. Even if you were to look, I mean, it's really interesting. Like, if you take a look at Acts chapter 4, Peter and John didn't seem to believe in open theism. Acts chapter 4, when... Acts chapter 4, I'll show this to you. 
Acts chapter 4. In verse 27, Peter and John are told to, um, they're threatened, they're released, uh, stop preaching about Jesus, they see what the Holy Spirit's doing, and, and this is what said, For truly, in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Very interesting. I mean, Pilate, Herod, they're culpable. They're guilty. They're, they're, the people of Israel, they're guilty for their kangaroo court and their false, uh, their, their, their false judicial process. But in the end, we can't subtract from the idea that God was actually sovereign over this. He predestined all this to occur. This is all according to his good plan. And, and here's the deal. There, there's no open theism with God. God is completely sovereign and in control. And he is not learning. Like I'll say once again, if he is learning, then he is not all-knowing. He is not all-wise. So we see this idea that wisdom connects to knowledge, and knowledge is connected to wisdom. That's why... Proverbs 9.10 says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. These two things really go together. So now that we've talked about this idea of the wisdom of what God is like and we've now taken this idea of the wisdom of God also has this idea of knowledge. Where there is the fear of God, there is a knowledgeable person. Where there is the fear of God, there is a wise person. I'd like to kind of point out this last kind of couple of ideas that where the fear of where there is the fear of God, there is a wise person, but that wise person is a moral person. So remember, we've looked at the wisdom of God. We've looked at where there is the fear of God. There is a wise person. Where there is a fear of God, there um, is a knowledgeable person. And where the fear of God is, there is a wise moral person. So wisdom. A lot of people, when they hear the word wisdom, they just think it's some kind of intelligence, right? They think of it's an intelligence, kind of like what Solomon has. If you're um, my reading uh, this year, I'm still using um, many different reading plans, but one plan I'm still using again this year, just in kind of read through the Bible just in one year, aside from the whole 90-day thing that we talked about earlier in the year, is the chronology reading. Um, the chronology reading. And uh, this past week, you saw Solomon. If you're reading with it, you, you would have saw that it was talking about Solomon, and you recall that situation god um solomon asks for god for wisdom god gives him wisdom and god gives solomon the kind of wisdom that um that helps him to take a difficult situation and come to a a a good wise response in fact if you're looking for a definition of just wisdom it's good judgment or the ability to develop the best course of action in response to a given situation all right that's from one author named jerry bridges so that's what we would call this kind of common wisdom that's the kind of wisdom that Solomon had when you read this past week where you remember the story when we go back to it that Solomon had this wisdom where remember there were two prostitutes and then both of them had a child and one one um, one had rolled over one had um, one had smothered their child and the other one and the other prostitute that had the one had smothered her child got up in the middle of the night got the the other prostitute's child and had taken it under her own arms and then they come to Solomon and the, 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 the one whose baby was still living, but 
that mom basically says, this is my child. She's taking it away. Things got swapped. And then Solomon, in his wisdom, said, well, let's just cut the baby in half. And then the, the real mom of the baby cried out and said, no, don't do that. And then, you know, that, that's then revealed who the real mom, right? If you kind of see that in that wisdom of Solomon. God, Solomon had asked God for that kind of wisdom. But here's where the thing kind of differentiates with Solomon. Solomon has wisdom, but he has common wisdom. But if you read enough of Solomon, he doesn't have much moral wisdom. Okay? So he has wisdom, but he doesn't have, he has common wisdom. Now, when you ask God for wisdom, the intent of God is to give this wisdom that is the common wisdom, but also God's, the, what God would have wanted for him would to have moral wisdom. But a, a man like Solomon who gathered a lot of treasure, a lot of horses, he gathered a lot of women, things that Israelite kings were told specifically not to do in Deuteronomy. He went ahead and did them anyways. Solomon didn't have great moral wisdom. He didn't. He didn't have common wisdom. He made some great decisions. He made some wise decisions. But he didn't have moral wisdom. So when we look at the word wisdom, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We're, we actually, the scriptures, I believe, are talking more about more than just common wisdom. Although a good thing, something we should ask God for. We should be wise people. But there's a type of wisdom that I think is even deeper in the scriptures that is called for. Not only the common, but the moral. Let me paint this picture and show you. If you were to look at Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 through 7, it says, Trust in Yahweh. With all your heart, do not lean on your own understandings. Verse 6, in all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear Yahweh and turn away from evil. Fear Yahweh and turn away from evil. So we see this idea in Proverbs 3, this idea that biblical wisdom has strong ethical, moral components. Take your Bible and look over at James. We're going to examine this a little bit. I want to show you once again. We have not only common wisdom, the kind of wisdom that that Solomon had, at least one side, we saw him making some very wise decisions. We also saw him making some very unwise moral decisions. God would be for both, but when we're asking and looking for wisdom and evaluating in our life, let's really look heavy towards the moral ethical component. In James chapter 3, verse 13, here's what the text says. Who among you is wise and understanding? This is James 3, 13. Let him show by his good conduct his works in the gentleness of wisdom. So who's wise? Who has the gentleness of wisdom? Those who, by his good conduct and his good works. So do you see that the idea of the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The, the wisdom and knowledge of God, the evidence and manifestation of that in someone's life will be the ethical and moral outflowings of their life. So if, a, if someone in Christ here today were to say to themselves, Lord, do I really fear you? Do I fear you in the full understanding of not only the fear and afraid, but the reverence and awe? Am I walking in the blessings of fearing the Lord? I would say well, does your life look morally wise? Does it look ethically wise? Let's keep reading. Look at it, verse 14. But if you have 
bitter jealousy. How would you know you would have bitter jealousy? You can't stand the person. It's a it's one of the manifestations of sinful anger. It's one of what happens when there's unforgiveness. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be ignorant and lie so against the truth. He's just saying you're not really as wise as you think if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, if you are self-ambition, self-exaltation. So a person who says, well, I make wise decisions. I, I, man, I know a lot about investing. I know a lot about um, how to take care of a house. I know a lot about work. I know a lot about how to actually do, uh, you know, how to pay less taxes. Or I, I have all this wisdom that I know. That's great. You might have common wisdom. That's great. You can think well through things. That's great. You can make a detailed list in the morning and, and knock that and, and you know, cross one, two, three, four, and five off the list. That's common wisdom. That's great. But God's word talks about a type of wisdom that descends from the fear of God that actually would entail this kind of wisdom that is an ethical, moral wisdom. And when a person is self-exalting, they have selfish ambition in their heart, bitter jealousy, I would submit to you that that is not a person who is walking in the fear of the Lord. It's not a person who's accurately, accurately walking in wisdom according to the moral wisdom. Verse 15, this wisdom that has bitter jealousy and selfish ambition and arrogance This wisdom is not coming down from above. It's not from God. It's earthly. It's natural. It's even demonic. You know, that is when we are prideful, we are self-exalting, when it's all about us, we're walking in unforgiveness, when we're walking in bitter jealousy, when we're walking in sinful anger, when we're walking in pride, it's earthly and demonic. Look at verse 16. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exists, there is this disorder in every evil practice. The most chaotic places to be are where there is selfish jealousy and self and selfish ambition, self-exaltation. Wherever people are lifting themselves up, wherever people are walking in pride, there is disorder. If you want to look at a house that has peace, it's a house full of people that are sacrificing, putting others' needs before their own. It's a household where there is generous forgiveness, just as Jesus has forgiven. There is a generous fighting of anger, sinful anger through kindness and tenderheartedness and forgiveness. And what leads a person to do that? Godly, moral wisdom out of the fear of the Lord. I mean, like, that's the reason you even forgive somebody. You know, a lot of people say this false idea of, I'll forgive when I'm ready. Or I'll forgive when I feel. And I would say that person has missed the wisdom of God. Because the wisdom of God in Ephesians 5.32 says that we forgive as Christ Jesus has forgiven us. Verse 17, but the wisdom. Look at this, look at this. But the wisdom from above, the moral wisdom, this ethical moral wisdom that truly comes from the fear of the Lord and, and having a right knowledge of the one true God, this wisdom... From above is first pure, then peaceable, considerate. It's, it's, it's considered about looking into others' needs, not their own Philippians 2. It's submissive to where the authority is in their life. Full of mercy. How can they extend mercy? The good, fruit, good fruits are there. The fruit of the Spirit is there. Without doubting, without hypocrisy, they're not hypocrites. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace 
are those who make peace. They have righteous fruit. They have a peaceful life. This is wisdom from above. I, I would submit to you is the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And don't think we're talking just, God's word is talking about just this common wisdom of, you, you, you know, you think well through things. That's, that's a good one. That's not bad. But there's this moral component. So do we fear the Lord? I would say, what does our life look like? Even a lot of times people take James chapter 1, and, and James chapter 1, great. In James chapter 1, I can't tell you how many times we've seen this. In verse 5, it says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. He must ask in faith, nothing doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven, tossed with wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. I've seen even people take this and go, if you need wisdom, ask God for wisdom. And what they're thinking is this common wisdom, right? That's what they're thinking, like, hey, you need wisdom to make a decision in life and go to God, ask him for that kind of common wisdom. Don't doubt that God will give it to you. Now, I would tell you on a surface level, nothing wrong with that. Not a thing wrong with that. Solomon asked for that. He got that component. He just didn't take the other component of wisdom, which was the moral ethical side. But when you look at the text here in James chapter one, notice before verse five, there's verse four. It says, and let perseverance have its perfect work so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Verse two says, consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials, knowing verse three, that the testing of your faith brings about perseverance. So what James is talking about in this letter, the persecution, and they're going through persecution, and he's saying, brothers, consider it all joy when you have various trials. You're being tried for your faith. Let it, it's going to help you to persevere. Let it have its perfect work that you'll be lacking in nothing. And if you have a, a doubting, if you're doubting this moral fear of God, this perfection of what God does through persecution and trial, man, ask God for wisdom. Ask God for moral wisdom so that you can believe him and have faith. Don't doubt that God will meet you in the midst of the difficulties, the, the difficulties of, of various trials. What is this? This is actually that moral wisdom in James chapter 1. Not just that common wisdom to make wise kind of in-line decisions. So my point is this. This is our last message on the fear of the Lord. And I think it's a sobering thing to ask ourselves. If we fear God... The evidence will be a life that walks in the moral wisdom of God in their life. How do our lives look? Are our lives marked by purity, peace, concerning others? Are our lives marked with a submissiveness to God, to where God has put us? Do, is our lives marked with mercy and good fruit? Are our lives marked with no hypocrisy? It's a diagnostic test. Now, as we end this and our worship team, you can go ahead and start making your way up here. I just want to point out one last thing. 2 Timothy 3.15. 2 Timothy 3.15. The last thing is, I've showed you where the, you know, the fear of the Lord is believed when you believe rightly about what God's wisdom is like. And then we looked at where the fear, where there's the fear of the Lord there's wisdom where the fear of the Lord, there's knowledge where there's fear of the Lord. There is actually moral wisdom that is moral, ethical. And then last is this, where there is the fear of the Lord, there is salvation. You know, it's interesting. We all know, let's well, say we all, maybe not everybody knows this, but 
2 Timothy 3. We, a lot of us know verse 16 and 17, and we use verse 16 and 17 of 2 Timothy 3 to talk about the um, authority and sufficiency of God's word. But notice verse 15, that Paul says this to Timothy, that from childhood, Timothy, you have known the sacred writings which are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. You know, where there is the fear of God, there is salvation. And I can tell you this, that it, if you want to be wise in the salvation, if you're here and you've never trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, let me encourage you to do something. Continue to hear the Word of God taught. Continue to hear the Word of God preached. Continue to read the Word of God. Continue to talk to people that know the Word of God. If you're parents, I mean, the best thing you, we can do for our children is to keep talking to them about the Word of God. What made Timothy wise unto salvation was the word of God. What brought Timothy to a fear of the Lord? It was the word of God. And what will bring you to salvation is the good news of Jesus Christ found all throughout the pages of this book. One who fears the Lord is brought to salvation through even this wise book. It makes you wise to salvation. Well, I'm going to do this. I'm going to pray now for our time. And, and man, I appreciate um, just getting to the modern technology of getting to talk to you even through this medium, medium here. And so, and I, my, my, my prayer is this, that as we walk away today, do we fear God as we, we've learned the blessingness of fearing God? Take a hard diagnostic and ask ourselves, does the moral wisdom of our, of our life actually reflect that we believe the blessings of fearing the Lord? Would you pray with me? Lord, would you... Uh, let us exalt you as now we're going to have some time of singing. We'll have some time of eating together. We'll have some time of edifying the body. We'll have some time of taking communion. And then we'll, we'll more than likely sing the doxology together. Let your name be glorified. If there's somebody here who's never trusted Christ, may today be their day of fearing the Lord. And by your word and spirit, Lord, could you be exalted as you bring them to you. And for the rest of us, let us truly catch a glimpse of what it looks like in the wisdom of God to fear the Lord. It's the beginning of wisdom. For your name, in Jesus' name, amen.